Social Strategy Podcast, episode 48. Welcome to the Social Strategy Podcast, where it's all about making the most of your business with smart tips on what's working now in social media, online business, and good old-fashioned networking. And now your host, who's also known as Ross PR on Twitter, Vernon Ross. Hey everyone, this week we are talking about storytelling, brand storytelling. I have a wonderful guest that's going to talk to us about how to effectively tell a story. And that intention plus storytelling will send you down a good path. And nothing could be truer about how to tell a good story when you're talking about your brand. This guy is a published author. He's got several works, a very interesting character. And I've actually directly had something to do with his most recent project. You guys will find out about that in the show. And before we get into it, I wanted to talk to you guys real quickly about lynda.com. Go out to lynda.com forward slash Ross. It's L-Y-N-D-A.com forward slash Ross, my last name. And you'll get a 10-day free trial to try out over 3,000 courses, full access, everything on the site. It's pretty crazy how much stuff you can learn out on lynda.com. And as you guys know, we have sponsors to the show sometimes. We also have partners and friends of the show. We have a new friend of the show, and it is Spreaker.com. I'm going to get you guys 30 days to try out Spreaker's broadcaster plan. Keep it if you like it. If you don't, there is a free option, but go out, try it. Enter the promo code Ross. Again, my last name. This is kind of a theme, right? Enter the last name Ross in the promo code when you sign up for the broadcaster plan, and you're going to get 30 days on me, no charge, to try it out, upload your content, broadcast live, which is really interesting, and we are doing Mindset Mondays exclusively on Spreaker. I'm not uploading it to iTunes, I'm just developing that audience on Spreaker, so you're going to have to go out to Spreaker to listen to Mindset Mondays. I'll be sending out tweets and Facebook posts and everything else, definitely go out there and check it out. Going to go ahead and get right into the show, and I will see you guys on the back end. Everyone, and welcome to the Social Strategy Podcast. This is Vernon Ross, bringing you the best in online business, social media, and good old fashioned networking. And today I've got a really great guest. Matthew Turner is from Turn Dog Millionaire. It's a very interesting name, and we're going to get into that. But currently, he has four fiction works already published, and he's working on another one. He's also got two nonfiction books, a very successful podcast. He's a speaker, but not really a speaker, more of an entertainer and an awesome storyteller. Matthew, welcome to the podcast. Hello. Thank you so much, Vernon. What a pleasure to be here. Yeah, man. We met because you're writing a new book called The Successful Mistake. Yeah. And you reached out to me via social media. We connected or I reached out to you. Either way, we ended up talking. Yeah, no, I definitely did a reach now. That is what I've been doing for the past two and a half years. <laughs> Emailing and tweeting and FBing a lot of right. interesting people. Right. So tell me a little bit about the successful mistake, and then we're going to step back into your background a little bit. Yeah, definitely. Well, it's coming up to about three years ago since I left my job and began working for myself. And when I first left my job, I was just scared. I didn't really know what I was doing. I didn't know what my next step would be. I had a big, long to-do list, but it's like, well, where do you start? So I did a lot of procrastinating, a lot of putting things off. I think a lot of people do when you start a new business or launch a new project.
project. So I started asking my entrepreneurial friends and business owner buddies to just like, give me advice, help. And so they shared stories and just about every single story was about a mistake or a failure or some kind of cock up. And I thought, why is everyone telling me all these bad stories? You know, because it's supposed to make me feel better. But they were doing it in a very positive way. They weren't like doom and gloom. It was like a badge of honor um, of sorts, as if like you need to make these mistakes in order to truly move on up. And I've always had, I think, a pretty good outlook on mistakes where I think you need to give people an opportunity to make them. Otherwise, you're under risk of never allowing them to fulfill their potential. They'll just stay static. And that's a terrifying thing, I think, for any kind of entrepreneur on any level. Exactly. So I sort of thought, well, I'm scared of making mistakes right now, but I look at them in quite a good light overall. And there's these people who have been doing this longer than I am, tell me about their mistakes, tell me about their failure. And the success mistake just manifested within a few moments after I left a Skype call with my buddy Arnold. And I thought, what would it be like if I interviewed like 150 plus entrepreneurs about their great mistake and how they transformed it into their great idea and how they turned it around so they not only learned from that one lesson, but learn how to be more successful, be better at what they do. And so that process began, yeah, two and a half and some change years ago. And during that time, I've interviewed 160 plus individuals, the majority of them over Skype or in person and a few over email. And I've been making a lot of connections, man, meeting some amazing people, inspiring minds with life changing stories. And they taught me a lot. Honestly, I know some of the people that you've interviewed and (laughs) I mean, all of them have had good things to say. And it's amazing what you've been able to do just over that period of time with interviewing so many people and not just for a podcast, but for an actual book. And I think it's a unique perspective to take. And it's something I'm looking forward to when it comes out. You've got some interesting things going on as far as the whole project is concerned. But before we get into that, I kind of want to go back a little bit. You said that three years ago, you left your job. How did that happen? What were you doing? And how did you get the courage to leave? Yeah, well, at the time of recording this, it's just about 20 February. So I left my job in April slash May, so approaching the three-year mark. And I was working as the marketing manager at a rugby club for a few years. And then I started splitting my time between that job and one of our director's companies Mm -hmm. doing a marketing at their company. And then I eventually left the rugby club to be full-time at um, the director's company. And I was there probably in a full-time capacity for only maybe six months because my role was about to change. So I had three options. One was to stay at the company and adjust to my new role, even though it wasn't going to be something I wanted. Two, look for another job, which is not too easy in this day and age. (laughs) And the third one was to fast track my idea of possibly working for myself. I didn't know what that entailed at the time. And it was a fairly new one. Some people dream of being an entrepreneur and owning their own business from the age of like seven. That wasn't me. It's only really been in the last few years where I started wondering, I could work for myself. I could start my own business. But I didn't really know what it was going to be like. I didn't know whether I was wanting an agency, whether I was wanting to be freelance or a consultant. But I decided to take the plunge because it's like, well, why not? Life needs a bit of risk. It needs a bit of plunging. And so I took it. 
And for the past, yeah, two and a half years, or at least for the first 18 months, I did a lot of what I call wandering in the wilderness. I knew that I wanted to focus more on my writing because I've been writing for about 10 years. I wanted to finally finish my novel. I wanted to start writing business books, um, which links into the successful mistake. I wanted to focus more on my blogging and take back things in. But I also wanted to somehow find a link to marketing because my background's in marketing. I love marketing, but I don't like all kinds of marketing. I hate what a lot of people perceive marketing to be. So for that first 18 months, I was trying to figure out I'm not a normal marketing consultant. Mm-hmm. I didn't really want an agency as such. So eventually it started to come together that I approach everything in a storytelling sense. So whether I'm writing a book, a novel, a business book, whether I'm preparing a speech for a speaking engagement or some kind of workshop, or whether I'm working with clients, I'm always wanting to go back and develop these narratives, focus on characters, start you know, plotting it. I approached everything as if I was actually creating a novel. So I thought, wow, brand storytelling is something at this point in time was just starting to get a little bit of emphasis it was getting a little bit of impact into the world and it's grown stronger and stronger in the last year or so so I decided to go down that route and focus my energy on brand storytelling in the beginning I still didn't really know what that fully entailed and I think I'm getting there now it's taken a longer than I probably would have liked but sometimes it needs to for you to able to connect those right dots rather than just any old dots right so how did you come up with the name turn dog <laughs> Well, yeah, you mentioned earlier, Turn Dog Millionaire. So I've dropped the millionaire bit now. I did so in December, just gone. I always wanted to just get to Turn Dog. But when I first started out, I wanted something that would stand me out. I mm-hmm. wanted something that people would remember. And Matthew Turner is a rather common name. You can't get MatthewTurner.com. I don't think I'd have even been able to get MatthewTurner.co.uk. <laughs> you Google it, Matthew Turner, you get like some 18th century botanist, I think quite often comes towards the top. And I mean, I've worked with two other Matthew Turners, <laughs> you know, so I think that kind of paints a picture of the obstacle I was facing. So I wanted something to stand out. And Turndog was born going, way back now, when I was about 16, 17 years of age, I played rugby. It was a random Tuesday or Wednesday night training session. And one of the guys who I'd been playing with since I was maybe 11 years old, Luke, bit of a quirky kid, big ginger-haired lad, good rugby player, very good. One of the best tacklers I've ever played with um, or against, for that matter. And he just randomly, on this cold night, just yelled, yo, turn dog. Pass me the ball. <laughs> and I was like, huh? And everyone else was like, what are you talking about? Who, who the hell's Turner? <laughs> you know, my last name's Turner, so I suppose it kind of makes sense. But up until then, I was just known as Turner. Like, people didn't call me Matthew or Matt, they called me Turner. And then out of nowhere, Luke just said Turn Dog, and it stuck. For the most part, in my rugby worlds, everyone just started calling me Turn Dog or T Dog. And then it always spilled into other parts of social circles. And right. this was a time when I was setting up my first email account. So it was Turn Dog underscore 18. And <laughs> a lot of my usernames, you know, for like forums and when you have to like do a username for something, I would often use Turn Dog. And so it's been part of my life ever since then. The nickname died a little bit. People called it me less once I got into my 20s, but it still played a really prominent part of my life because it was my email, it was my usernames, it was on like certain t-shirts and things that I own. 
So I thought, well, I've got this name, which is really, uh, it stands out. Like people are like, what the hell's turned up? Where does that come from? People are interested in it. And one night, I think I was just like brushing my teeth or something and thought, slumdog millionaire, turndog millionaire, done. Right. (laughs) (laughs) And I felt like people would go, oh, well, you know, I know Slumdog Millionaire. That's a very popular movie. And it was even more popular when I first sort of came up with the name. And turndog, slumdog, kind of on the same line. So I felt like, you know, that association was there. So I went with that and I decided to call my blog and my consultancy business, I suppose, turndog. Mm millionaire but the dream was always to just drop the millionaire bit and just kind of get to a point of turn dog and that's just it and that's what i've recently done and there's other branches to what i do so when i release a book it's under turn dog publishing and i do a few like events and stuff so that's under turn dog events but so yeah the vision is to build somewhat of a turn dog empire and it all began with some cold wintry wednesday night <laughs> and it's all down to a guy called luke so that's, that is that's awesome. That's an awesome story. It's not what I expected, but I guess it makes sense. So like Slumdog Millionaire, do you come from a scrappy background where you've basically had to decide to put together your business and do everything and fight for it that way? Or it just happened just to fit? It just happened to fit. No, I'm really fortunate. I'm not from like a thoroughbred rich family or anything, but I've got very supportive parents who I truly appreciate and owe a great deal to and continue to. They're fantastic grandparents to my to my son and they gave me a fantastic upbringing. And yeah, they still support me now in my times of need as an entrepreneur and as a father and as a writer. So yeah, very much not the Slumdog Millionaire story. So it was just, <laughs> you know, a name that fit. And but it also had a bit of because I've never really been massively into money and even less so these days. The focus hasn't been on money. So the fact that millionaire was in the name was a bit of a, I suppose, a humorous anecdote for me. Because I was right. like, you know, millionaires in my name, but I don't particularly um kind of tongue in cheek. Yeah, I don't aspire to be uber rich. I just want to aspire to have impact on this world, I suppose. And that has one of the things which I've learned even more so by interviewing everyone for success and stake, I've started to define what success means to me. And I've truly realized that becoming a millionaire um, isn't part of that. It'd be nice to have enough money where I don't have to worry about it or think about it at any point. But mm-hmm. yeah, a millionaire doesn't necessarily make or break an individual. Right. So when I interviewed with you and we talked and I went over your site and looked at YouTube videos and just, you know, all the background research to understand who I was going to be talking to. One of the things that struck me is that you're a really good storyteller. And I think that it's essential that people understand how to tell stories because the better you can tell stories, the more skillfully you're able to communicate your message, the more you connect with people on a deeper level so that when and if you have things to offer for sale or you're trying to influence a group of people for whatever reasons, whether it just be a lecture or whether you're trying to get them to buy a product because you think it's going to be best for them, however it works out, it's important to be a good storyteller. How did you develop the method behind being able to tell a good story? Well, I mean, to be honest, we're all storytellers. It's in our DNA. It's natural. Some people are better at it than others, like anything. But I feel being a storyteller, it's not a skill so much as a mindset. Like we all do it naturally. 
you know, you tell a story to your kids when you're down at the pub and you're talking about your day. You don't generally do it in some third-person narrative and start just relaying all the facts. You know, you try and place that person in the moment and say, oh, yeah, I was at my desk early and Bob came over and Bob's can be a bit weird and he smelled a little weird for some reason and I didn't really know anything. He came down and was like, yo, man, I saw this guy last night. And you kind of talk about it in that sort of way. You know, yeah. you try and put person, you know, your friends, people who you feel comfortable around in a situation of like you want them to be there with you and like I say some people are better at it than others but we all do it we all are part of our own story we watch films we read books we tell our kids fairy tales we share anecdotes down at the pub and there's a lot of fantastic um, TED Talks out there and YouTube videos which go into the sort of science of storytelling and how ultimately if you like it helps us learn, it helps us understand. And even if we put something kind of blank on the screen, you know, just random shapes interacting on the screen, we will try and translate that into some kind of story. Like we'll relate it to a soap opera or we'll relate it to conflict, yeah. something along those lines. And it's so it's natural, it's built in us. And I think it comes down to the fact that that is how we pass down knowledge for neons of years. Right. Like yeah, even I, books are a relative yeah. like snap of the fingers in the grand scheme of things. You know, for tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of years, we were evolving and evolving. The only way we were able to pass down knowledge, our family was to, you know, sit them down around a campfire to tell them stories and to pass it on that way. And that is how we have developed, I feel at least, one of the big reasons why we've evolved into a somewhat intelligent species because we've learned how to embrace and tell and love storytelling. Yeah, so with that being the case, why do you think it's so hard for brands to be able to tell a good story? Because we overthink things. Just like people, we perceive storytelling to be a novel, or we perceive it to be that one guy you know who's just got the knack to kind of get people's attention and to keep it for like an hour. But it's not that, you know, ultimately storytelling is just passing on a message in a way that, you know, I call it leaning in, just getting people's attention and keeping it. So whether you're an individual or you're a brand, it's there. You're a part of a story. You have stories to tell. The brand itself is a story. There's numerous stories going on within that story, through the culture, through the staff, through the clients. And we just overthink things. I think, especially from a business point of view, we get warped by this idea of ROI and how much money I need to get and all these forecasts. And they're facts and they're figures and it's really rational. And if you focus on that, you'll never get a good story. I mean, ask a writer who writes a book, mm -hmm. a novel I'm thinking for the most part here. They've got loads of numbers that they're going to have to think about and all the facts and figures and the rationales. They have to think about word count. They have to think about how many copies they might need to sell. They need to think about book tours and everything like this. Not just from a self-publishing point of view, but, you know, all these things. There's rational sides of writing a book. But it's not like you sit down to write a novel and think, okay, I want to write a novel about dragons and wizards, and I've got the plot, but before I do that, I'm going to get this really detailed spreadsheet filled out. <laughs> I know, you know, the ins and outs of how much it's going to cost. You know, you just start writing, you know, you plot it out. You're like, one of my characters is going to be called Dave, and I want Dave to be really weird and have a red cape. And then I want another character called Karen, and she's going to have a purple cape. And she's not going to be quite as weird. And you start writing. 
and you start building a story and you focus on the emotions and you focus on that kind of impact and that kind of conflict and the stories come later. And I think you'll find with a lot of forward-thinking brands these days, they'll place story front and centre. You know, they'll be transparent, they'll let their culture shine through, they'll let the greater impact they have on the world and that they hope to have on the world be the focus, be the story. And everything else can kind of just come after. It's not to say that the numbers and the forecasting and the ROI isn't important. It's just that it should come a bit later down. Right. Yeah, I have seen that with more brands here lately. Mm. You just have to look at someone like Buffer, for instance. Fantastic at telling stories. But it's not like they've got a story in the same sense of someone like Tom's. Like Tom's have a considered big story-centric brand because they've got that big one-for-one model. There's a big story in there. It's emotional. It involves community. It involves poverty, everything like that. You know, Buffer don't really have that, but they have such – they're amazing at sharing stories because they're so transparent. They – completely open the doors to their business and say, you know, we want you to see how much various different employees and staff-wise, we want to break down where our money goes, you know, their culture, so you're involved in their culture, and they make you lean in. It's storytelling. Just because they don't begin with once upon a time doesn't make it not a story. Right. That's so awesome. Being a writer and actually having gotten through at least one book. <laughs> it's a difficult process. I had a little bit of a breakdown earlier <laughs> in the writing process. I was going over my notes and although I'd started and had an outline and everything else, you start writing in one word document and then you go to a different one and you've got a different part of your notes that you're looking at and it all gets mixed up and you realize that what you thought you were working on is not actually what you've been working on. Have you ever dealt with that as a writer? Yeah, and it works the other way, too, where a writer thinks, again, too much. They have a really good story. The story's there. It's going to be interesting. And they get lost in the detail. And they try and make it perfect before they just kind of get the essence of the story out there. And, yeah, whether it's writer's block, whether you just can't quite figure out a particular character, one scene, I've gone through it all. And this, my latest novel, Iron Love Here, is my third. I've just finished the first draft, as in this week. And usually a first draft I'll work on, it takes me like three to four months. Mm-hmm. My previous novel, my Tick to the Talk, I think my first draft was maybe five months. And this one has taken a year pretty much to the day. Oh, wow. And I don't really believe in writer's block per se, because I can always write. It doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be any good. It doesn't necessarily mean that it is even going to involve that story, but I can always write. And I like when people talk about, people talk about having writer's block, but you don't have talker's block. You know, if you if you wanted to talk into a dictaphone, like you'd be able to talk about something that you don't have talker's block. But writer, So writer's block isn't really my point of view, but you certainly do go in and out of flow and you get into the different kind of zones. And some projects are just more challenging than others. And sometimes it's not even a project. Sometimes it's just the rest of your life. You might be going through something personal. You might just have a bit too much on your plate. Or you might just have struggled down a path of some kind. So, yeah, I think as a writer and any kind of artist, painter, poet, musician, actor, you're going to go through these zones and these periods where it's like, wow, it just flows off me. It's so amazing. It feels great. And then there's other periods where you just stare at the screen for about a day and nothing comes out. 
so yeah i go through those periods all the time and i've very much gone through it's been a difficult first draft third novel i hope the second won't be quite as tough Mm -hmm. but it's been just a very challenging book and i don't really understand why just yet but maybe it will come about at some point so with publishing your third fiction novel have you considered the traditional publishing route or do you prefer self-publishing I prefer self, although there's a new model that's coming about, which I find quite intriguing, to say the least. I never pitched my first novel to agents or publishers. I was going to, but I didn't in the end because I found self-publishing. And I like freedom. I like creative freedom. I like to be involved in the entire process. And I'm a firm believer you need to, well, you don't need to, but it helps to understand how everything works and then get to a point where you can outsource it and delegate to people, but you still are able to have a conversation, understand, you know, how distribution of a book works, for instance, and how editing and how book covers are made. Whereas as a writer in a traditional publishing house, they'll be like, you write this and we'll do everything else. And we'll take a great deal of freedom off. And at the end of the day, my book's my baby. It's everything to me. It's huge. And the thought of just handing that over to some agency to just exploit it as they will it puts me on an ease but there's a new sort of method it kind of embraces the idea of crowdfunding mm-hmm. and self-publishing but brings a traditional twist to it so there's a few houses that I do this and I was recently speaking to the guys at ink shares and it's a very interesting um model and, and really stupidly simple to be quite honest, because they have like an algorithm, like most software companies do. They have a wonderful site. It's, it's delicious. It's such a pretty site. And they kind of speak to the author. They get an idea of how many pages in the word count and they'll let their algorithm do their work and say, right, we're going to do a crowd publishing campaign that's going to last 30 odd days and we need to raise $10,000. If we do, we'll publish this. And you will still have a lot of the freedom as a self-publisher will. Like you'll get more royalties. You'll get certain freedoms of like what kind of promotions you can do. They want you involved in the process. But they're also going to help you get into places like Barnes & Noble and get really quality print runs done and take a lot of those headaches, which are so tiresome from a writer's point of view. And you quickly learn that there's often a reason why there's teams of people for just one book. (laughs) Because there's a huge amount to do. And it's hard for one person, even just delegating it to a few virtual assistants or editors or whatnot. So they certainly help in that sense. And they're able to vet and not say, right, we're not going to like dismiss a manuscript based on what we, the editor, feel is and isn't. Because that doesn't work. Otherwise, why would Harry Potter have been turned down 12 times? Exactly. Why would Gone with the Wind been turned down 34 times? So it's a very subjective process. Whereas they're kind of saying with crowd publishing, and it's been going on for a few years with things like Kickstarter, is if you can show that it's viable, that you know you can raise eight or ten thousand dollars, you know, and we do that, then it shows that there's a market for this. That will cover our initial costs to get it printed, to get it edited, to get the design, to make it as high quality as possible, what you would expect from a traditionally published book. And that's not to say that self-publishers don't have just as high standards, because I know many that do, and I like to think that my standards are up there too. But, you know, they kind of go above and above, and you know that you're going to be able to get into certain places like the New York Times and, you know, get the traditional reviews too, because they've got these kind of contacts because they're a publishing house in a sense they've got those contacts 
But they're also saying, we're not going to vet whether this is right or wrong based on my opinion. We're going to send it out to the public and see if it's a viable product. So it's combining, for me, self-publishing and traditional publishing and this whole idea of creating a viable product, so crowdfunding. And you just have to look at what some of the best online marketers in the world at the minute do. People like your Clay Collins and your Danny Ionis and your Seth Godins, they go out there and it's like, you know, test it. See that there's a market. See what people want from it. Sell it before you even make it and then just watch it and just hit the heavens. Yeah, that's, so that's amazing. A, yeah, so it's <clears throat> just starting to kind of go that way. And I'm really intrigued and I'm excited to kind of delve further into that in the coming years. Because self-publishing is amazing. It's great for the freedom, but it has its limitations. And I've always wanted to kind of be a bit of a hybrid author, like your Hugh Howies of the world and the like, where, you know, you are a self-published author, but you release a book, you do the e-books side of things, but then you get a traditional publisher on board to do certain things. Yeah, that's interesting. I had not heard of that concept. I know you had mentioned it earlier it's, when we were talking. It's pretty new. And yeah, for me, it's the true essence of what being a hybrid author is. So like Hugh Howie's a self-published author who has a publishing house, like a big name publishing house backing him. So he's got a lot of the freedoms that a self-publisher has, but he's also got a lot of the benefits that having a traditional publisher behind you does too. But you know, Hugh Howie's a big fish and mm -hmm. it's difficult to become a hybrid author. You need to really get a lot of traction first. So what this method does is... You're still going to need to sell some books. You're still going to need to show that you're talented. You're not going to be able to just be some hack and release rubbish books and expect to get places like Ink Shares to take you seriously because you're not going to raise that initial 10 grand. But it gives you an easier option to get into there. And for me, that's the true idea of hybrid because you are self-publishing, but you're doing it with an artisan publishing house. They don't give out advances. They don't go out and, you know, get the latest celebrity and trying to sell their books that way. They've got a site, they've got a community, and they've got a set of authors. They can probably limit it to amount of projects at any one go. And it's saying, if you want this book to see the light of day, pledge, pre-order, back this thing. Right. And if that's, not, that's then amazing. it won't. That's so, awesome. Yeah, it's a really interesting one. And like I say, I haven't really delved into it much yet. But I see it as something that I definitely will do. And not for the success mistake, I Love You, the, the third novel, because they're too far down. But Ink Shares in particular, I see as, you know, for my future novels, it's definitely something that's interesting to me. And I am crowd publishing Success Mistake through a brilliant platform called Publishizer. And I recently was speaking to one of the authors who was successful on that platform, and he's involved in a company that isn't all that different to what I was just talking about with InkShares. So even all in the last six weeks, I've just unearthed this new world. And it's been going on for probably about a year, but it is very niche. It isn't mainstream at the minute. And I imagine in the next 18 months, there'll be more platforms like InkShares, and they will be more authors who come along and these true hybrid type writers where you are, you're not selling your soul over to a big house publisher, but you're also not doing it completely on your own like a self-published author would. Right. Yeah, I know that uh, Natalie Sisson, she did some crowdfunding for her book. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Natalie did, it. Or, yeah. Natalie did it. Natalie did it. God, it's probably about two years ago now. Come mm -hmm. on. 
And she was so successful. And AJ Leon did it with his book. And obviously there's been big successes for people like Seth Godin. So crowdfunding has been an option for books for a while. But if you look at places like Indiegogo and Kickstarter, the projects more often than not that fail the most often are quite often books. Those are fantastic platforms for film, for art, for fashion, for products. But for whatever reason, books have never really seemed to hit the mark unless the person coming on board has had a very established audience. And you look at someone like Natalie, I think her target was about $5,000, so not a huge amount. I mean, her audience, they're loyal to her. It's sizable. It was always going to kind of work, really. Um, same with AJ Leon. He was aiming for about 10000 and it's like he's going to boss that because he's got the audience. You know, he's got that community already. So for whatever reason, Kickstarter just never quite hit it off for books. We, you saw a lot of books that failed, and I myself have had two failed Kickstarter campaigns for my fiction work. And it's a tough cookie to crack. So I've been wanting to crowd publish Success Mistake, but I was like, I don't really want to do it on Kickstarter, but do you want to go to one of these more niche? Because there's hundreds of crowd publishing sites these days. And yeah, some of are. them are bespoke for podcasts or bespoke for designers or graphic design or books or movies. So I thought, well, I want one that is going to do it, but at the same time, if it's not really got much attraction, is it going to be any worse or any better than a Kickstarter? So thankfully I was introduced to Publishizer and that was something that aligned with me. The guys behind Publishizer aligned with me. And yeah, it's an exciting platform that I see going places. That is amazing. And I had no idea about Publishizer. So thank you for sharing that with the audience. I'm sure there are going to be a lot of authors out there looking at that site and they'll have you to thank for it. So Publishizer, that's what you're actually using for the successful mistake to crowdfund it, right? Or to crowdpublish it. That's right. Yeah, it's a crowdfunding platform specifically for books. And although it's open to all kinds of book genres, at the moment at least, it's very um, focused on business type books. So I don't know if your listeners will be aware of Tom Marks, but... Tom is someone who's appeared in The Success Mistake 2, and he recently had a successful campaign on Publishizer, and he was the person who introduced me to Guy and the team at Publishizer. And it's just an exciting platform. It gives everything that you know a Kickstarter or Indiegogo does, but it's bespoke for books. And as such, they've got a few more contacts in the book industry and they can help introduce you to book designers and publishers and proofreaders and editors and everything like that. And because they focus on books and nothing but books, they are able to kind of help sway you towards the kind of things that will work for books. Whereas obviously an everything for everyone kind of platform like an Indiegogo, you don't always get that. And it's also smaller, so you get a much more hands-on approach. So I was looking for a crowd publishing platform for the success mistake. And within about 10 minutes of speaking to Guy, I was like, this is it. You know, it aligns with my idea of community. It's not so much about the funding rather than the crowd aspect, you know, those connections, giving people an option to, you know, truly be part of the process. And it just felt like I was going to get a more intimate one-on-one -on -one relationship with a platform like Publishize than I would anywhere else. And so far, I have loved the experience. And when I 
leave this call with you, I will be literally clicking the publish button and starting a campaign. So I'm excited and nervous beyond belief. <laughs> yeah, that is, that is awesome. And we're going to put a link in the show notes to your publishizer campaign so people can go out and fund it. And I'm sure you're going to have at least 150 people that are going to fund it. <laughs> <laughs> I hope so. Yeah. Yeah. You'll be able to check it out at tdog.co forward slash Merry Misfit. And I've called it trying to create a band of Merry Misfits. And it's inspired by um, AJ Leon, you know, the King Misfit himself. And yeah, the whole sort of idea is, you know, just be part of something which you won't be able to do in any other sense like books tend to be quite a standalone process you know the writer hides a lot i'm trying to open it all up and i suppose i started crowd publishing the whole project as soon as i started involving people like your good self i was saying like i want your stories to help build a more um sort of larger action story right you know it's an awesome concept i always love it when you see books that multiple people have contributed to because i think it's a conglomeration of stories from different people is usually something that turns out to be amazing. So it's awesome that you're doing it this way. And I was out on the Publishizer site just looking at it, and it looks like a really interesting process and program, and it's something I'm going to look into myself. So, Oh, if you want a connection to Guy, like you just let me know. Yeah, <laughs> they, I are, I will they are a cool bunch. And they're just very helpful with it. You know, they've helped connect me with, past authors on the system too and guy himself knows a lot of individuals and it's just been a really fantastic um, process and what they've got planned too they're trying to make it into more of a community where if you are maybe not a writer yourself but you're a keen reader you can get involved in that community so you can feel more like a beta reader and you can get involved in things like proofreading and there'll be aspects for designers to get involved it's trying to you know transform the whole process into a more you use it yourself like a collaboration rather than anything else my outlook on things is i'm capable of good but if i want great i need to involve other people you know from a very simplistic writing point of view that kind of begins and ends at editing but I think it can go much deeper than that by involving readers, by involving fellow writers, by involving those that you trust, and maybe even those that you don't, and seeing where it goes and seeing the sort of stories that can come into your life and the kind of inspiration in that sense. Yeah, no, that is an awesome note to kind of end it on is that the collaboration of people, as you were talking about, and how we as human beings tell stories. And I think that's amazing. You're an awesome storyteller, and I hope that people check out your YouTube channel because you've got some great videos on there. And your site is amazing. I like the moving background. I forget. <laughs> is that the, I think that's called Parallax when you're. Yeah, it's uh, yeah, Parallax methods. I use a framework called Divi, and it is awesome for people like me who don't know how to code. <laughs> and the whole idea of coding, you know, just brings rashes. So, uh, you know, so yeah, yeah, I hear you. I actually do know how to code, and I still hate trying to do it on my own <laughs> site because you never get finished. No, no, a bit like writing. Yeah, you right. never end. Ninety percent of writing is rewriting, and I imagine it's a very similar process for websites. <laughs> oh yes, it is. So you did your entire site yourself. 
I did, yeah. For the first time ever, I was able to do it all on my own because Divi gave me that freedom. It's a fantastic piece of kit. And, yeah, it just ticked all my boxes. So I've not had to involve a friend to go in and tighten up any of his CSS or, you know, add a little bit of this or add a bit of that. It's been an amazing process. It was the first real time where I enjoyed the making of a website all the way through. I quite often enjoy planning a website and frameworking it. That side of things I find enjoyable. But once I get into the nitty-gritty, not so much. But on this occasion, I loved every part of it. Well, that's amazing because this is truly an amazing website. If you guys go out to turndog.co, you'll see exactly what I'm talking about. And you'll go, oh, yeah, this was designed by somebody. But when you start going through the site and the responsive design and the fact that elements, you know, come in as you're scrolling through them and it's – You're starting to see this more, but it's well put together and very intentional the way the site is designed. So kudos to you. Thanks, man. And, you know, I think just to leave on that point of I think the word intention is a really valid one for storytelling. And especially from a brand point of view, we talked about it earlier, you know, why brands aren't always good at telling stories and i think it's because of that they're not always intentional about every single aspect that they do and if you appreciate that every single thing that you do plays a part and a role in your story and you think well you know the colors that i use and the you know not just the logo but all the different icons and every kind of little piece of a puzzle comes together to tell your overall story i think the concept of embracing story in a business sense becomes much easier because you're able to just step back and go, okay, I like this, but does it help me tell my story? If it does, great. If not, why am I doing it? So it is just having that intention with everything that you do, you know, how you answer the phone, how you dress, you know, what your website looks like, the copy that you use. It all comes part to storytelling. And we go back to something like Buffer, they're very intentional about everything that they do from a transparency point of view and how they can constantly nurture and improve their culture. And as such, it builds an epic and memorable story that really, truly really does immerse their audience. So, yeah, intention plus storytelling will send you down a good path. I think it will. Tell everybody where they can find you online. You can find me on turndog.co and there's links to my Facebook and Twitter there. So be sure to say hello. And I also have a free 30-day brand story course that you can sign up to. So if you are interested more in like storytelling from a business point of view and a brand point of view, that could be cool for you. And yeah, like I say, you can check out um, by visiting tdog.co forward slash merrymisfit. Although if you just hit me up on Facebook or Twitter, you'll probably see links to the um, Success in the State crowd publishing campaign all over because I will be drumming that beat (laughs) for the next few weeks, that is for sure. And yeah, I'm excited to just involve hopefully another, I've already got 160 odd people involved to help me write the book. And now hopefully I can involve another 160 odd people who want to, you know, be part of the writing process. So that is awesome. Hopefully a lot, hopefully a lot more than that. But right. Yeah. Right. Well, it's been great having you on the podcast, man. I really did enjoy talking to you again. We have to not wait so long before we do it next time. We do, we do. And I'm so excited uh, for everything that you've got planned. I won't spoil any of it, but your listeners, I'm sure, will be very thankful for everything you've got planned for this year. So 
Oh yeah, yeah. I hope, to I leave hope it so, on man. to leave it on a cliffhanger. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> We're not telling you, but it's gonna be big. It's gonna be good. All I say is, listeners, keep listening. <laughs> I like it. All right, man. Hey, thanks a lot. I appreciate it. Cheers, man. Pleasure. All right, guys. What did I tell you? That was amazing. I, you know, I love how Matthew talks about telling stories. It's he's engaging to me. I really, uh, I really enjoy what he's doing. And what an awesome project to interview over 150 entrepreneurs about their most successful mistake. The mistake that they made that helped them become successful. It's a really interesting concept, and I'm looking forward to having the book. I actually backed the uh, Publishizer campaign, and I hope that you guys will go out and back the project. He still has some money to raise, and there's about 14 days left at the recording of this episode. So go out and contribute so we can get this thing printed and put out there. It's a, it's a really good work, and I'm, I'm looking forward to it because I know some of the people that are in this book, you guys probably do too. If you listen to podcasts, there are going to be people you know like Jared Easley and Natalie Sisson and Jamie Tardy, and I could just go on. Chris Brogan's in the, in the book. I mean, it's, it's going to be an amazing book. Go out there, back it for what you can afford, Publishizer, and it's interesting. Plus, they have a really interesting platform. You know, we talked about a lot of good stuff in the show, and we – you know, also touched on the difference between self-publishing and using a site like Publishizer and crowdfunding. One of the things that Turndog's got going on right now is that he's got an article out on Copyblogger. So I'm going to link to that in the show notes. That was really impressive. He always wanted to write for Copyblogger, and that dream has come true for him. So I'm really happy and proud of Matthew for that. Uh, we also talked about what inspired him to do this to begin with and that unique name turn dog and where it came from and the whole origin of it i don't think anybody had ever asked him that before so that's a real treat we also teased something that may happen on the podcast i'm not going to tell you guys about it last week you know we had an amazing episode with david potruck so uh it's it's on that level that's that's all i'm gonna say so before we get out of here guys you know lynda.com is a sponsor of the show i really do appreciate all the support you guys have been showing by going out to lynda.com forward slash Ross. And it's exclusively for the Social Strategy Podcast listeners. I've had some good feedback on Lynda. It's a 10-day free trial. You can go out for 10 days, play around with it, get to learn something new. It's 10 days worth of learning. And I've actually had a couple of people talk to me about the fact that they were able to go out there, pick up some stuff, go out there, try it out, kick it around a little bit, and let me know what you think. The feedback is really, really valuable because I want to be able to provide that to our sponsor partners to say, hey, people are really resonating with this and that this is something that you guys want for the podcast. Let me know. I, I really am enjoying the benefit of being able to help you guys out with a 10-day free trial from lynda.com. And also, Spreaker is a friend of the show. I've got you guys 30 days, 30 days of a broadcaster account to go out there and just kill it on Spreaker. It's a fairly new platform. It's not brand new, but it's a newer platform. I love the way it looks. It embeds really nicely. It plays well on Twitter and Facebook. It plays in line on Twitter, so you don't even have to leave your stream. You can just start the thing playing. You can share it, like it, put it out all over the place. It is really, really easy to use. And if you want to do a live show, you can do a live show and have all kinds of music. They've got a built-in like DJ console. It integrates with everything. There's all kinds of stuff and benefit to using Spreaker. So go out, Spreaker.com, enter promo code ROSS. 
get a 30-day broadcast account on me when you enter that promo code. All right, guys. Remember, you can find me online, Vernon at VernonRoss.com. The website is VernonRoss.com or the SocialStrategyPodcast.com. Tweet me. Tag me on Instagram. Let me, let me know where you're listening to the show. I am Ross PR on Instagram. And I'm also Ross PR on Snapchat. So snap at me. I'm messing around on that platform and experimenting. So I want to be able to give you guys a really good white paper to tell you guys how I am using Snapchat and Instagram for business, which is just interesting. Also, guys, really quickly before I go, I just launched a LinkedIn Profile Mastery course. And what LinkedIn Profile Mastery is, and actually this one is a template, but I'm going to be launching a course really, really soon to help you if you're an author or a speaker, really, really make your LinkedIn profile pop. Right now it's free. There's a link on the website, just go right out to it. I'm not giving out a link, just go out to the front of the website, You'll see it right there, right on vernonross.com. It's over on the right-hand side, LinkedIn Mastery for a limited time. It is free. If you're on the email list, you just got an email from me last night, check it out. I hope you guys go out there and download it. It's exclusively on Gumroad. That's how I send out everything because I just love that platform. Go check it out, LinkedIn Profile Mastery. It's going to help you get a profile that's going to get you booked. It's going to get you paid speaking gigs. And we all know as speakers and authors, that's what you want. I've been testing this thing, and a lot of people have had success with it. So go out, download that. Guys, I've had an amazing time today, and I will see you in the next episode.